We were all talking about you the other day. I got to do a director's roundtable and everyone was talking about the community of filmmakers and we were like, Guillermo is the best. Here we are. <laughs> and here we are. No, it was, it was so sweet because like everyone had a story. They were like, oh, and then Guillermo told me. And You've been super busy, I imagine. Yeah, I've been running around and doing all the things, you know, but the usual, the usual. But, but it's good. It's nice. It's like a exciting time. How have you been? Crazy. Hopefully we'll catch up. But so do you do you know what we're doing in the format and so forth? Or? Well, yes. What is the format? I mean, I kind of know, but tell me so I'm, I don't get it wrong. That's Greta Gerwig and Guillermo del Toro. They're both out working on their latest projects, but they've taken some time to get together with me on a Zoom. And we're getting ready to record a conversation about Howard Hawks. Up until now, Peter Bogdanovich would have been with us, answering Greta's questions about the podcast and asking her questions about being a filmmaker. But Guillermo and I are trying our best. Unfortunately, Peter passed suddenly, which I'm still getting over in the sense of it's pretty heavy. Yeah. We've taken a break so I can pull myself together and continue. And I'm so happy that Guillermo has wanted to step into Peter's chair as the host. Guillermo, you were a guest with Hitchcock and Peter. Yeah. And um, that was brilliant. And it was such a sweet moment, Guillermo, that when we did the podcast with Peter, he never had done a podcast yet. So he felt so comfortable with you as a director because you were directing him. And you did it in a way that was so sweet. And he goes, I don't know what I'm doing. And he kept apologizing, trying to figure out the format like I'm trying to do now. I just remember Peter later saying, God, he's a, Guillermo is a real actor's director. I don't know. It helped that there was ice cream nearby. <laughs> Guillermo and I are still mourning the loss of our dear friend, Peter Bogdanovich. Even though he lived a long life and accomplished so much, there were still so many things that he wanted to do. This project was one of those things. I figured it would be something left unfinished. But when I went back and listened to his recordings, both past and present, I started to cry. It wasn't just that these conversations with the masters were priceless artifacts of film history. And it wasn't just hearing Peter's voice in different stages of his life, young and old, what moved me the most was hearing the voices of his guests and recognizing the admiration, the reverence, the love that they had for Peter. And it was all of those things that made me realize that other people should get to hear what I heard. And Guillermo del Toro felt the same way I did. And so he offered to pick up where Peter left off as the host of this project, to see it through. Not just as a tribute to Peter, but as an affirmation of Peter and his life's work, his passion for cinema. I think what is great is to talk about the form, to talk about the directors, to talk about the actors from the perspective of somebody that does it for a living and tries to make it accessible to people. I think cinematic language is being forgotten. There is very little discussion. Everything is about the what, not the how, not the when, not the why. And Peter tried to recuperate the details of our craft because it is a craft and it is a, a craft that you hone through the years. The fact that he had this treasure trove of recordings chronicling 
the baton that is passed from one generation of filmmakers to the other is something that we are all in charge of. He did it, but it's up to all of us to keep it alive and make it new. And it's up to everybody at home to listen to it and, and enjoy the voices of masters of our craft coming back. Guillermo, I just want to thank you from the bottom of my heart. Um, and I know that Peter would feel the same way. He loved you. And I just, I'm very touched that you finished this. And now the world gets to hear this. And you made this happen. Thank you. It was the connective tissue that allowed this bloodline to flow into the future. And so are we. And here we go. Speed. Rolling. This is the desert outside of Palm Springs, California. It's about two hours' drive from uh, Los Angeles. Howard Hawks lives here in Palm Springs when he's not making pictures. You can hear him in the background. He's uh, riding the dunes with his son, Greg. Here he comes now. This recording is from Palm Springs, California, at the home of the legendary Howard Hawks. It's 1967. Peter is there with the BBC, filming a television show about the life and career of Howard Hawks. Hi, Peter. Hi. How are you? Fine, thank you. That's quite a thing you built. It is, isn't it? Yeah, it's a little bumpy, but I mean, it does the job. Yeah. Well, if I you want some... to talk, let's sit in that yeah, thing, come on, shall we? Yeah. <sighs> well, Pete, start asking questions. All right. It's fitting that Peter's going to interview Howard Hawks and his homemade dune buggy. Before he became a film director, Hawks was a race car driver. He also flew planes. He was a pilot in World War I, and you can tell from his filmography. Hawks made numerous films about aviation. Those movies might be as close as Hawks got to having a signature genre. He was an auteur, known as much for his versatility as he was for his mastery of the craft. You've attempted just about every kind of different picture. Uh, musical, comedy, spectacle, drama, and uh, period piece and so on. Uh, what leads you to these different kinds of pictures? Finding a story that I like to tell. Peter and Hawks became close over the years. Hawks wasn't as much the complicated father figure to Peter as Orson Welles. He was more like a cool uncle. You can see more of Hawks in Peter's work than Wells. They visited each other on set. Hawks was generous with encouragement and advice. Howard Hawks interview, first part. Peter sat down with Howard Hawks one-on-one -on -one for an interview in 1972. I just learned that if you enjoy a thing, that you can go ahead and do it, and the audience will like it, too. Mm. And in that way, you don't have to stop and question about it if you like it, because the audience likes it. Mm -hmm. To the general public, Howard Hawks doesn't have quite the same name brand cachet as some of his peers, like Alfred Hitchcock. But to the connoisseurs, like Peter Bogdanovich, Hawks was every bit as essential. My name is Louise Stratton, and this is One Handshake Away. From Howard Hawks to Greta Gerwig.
They said it couldn't be done. They say it bordered on impossible. When someone says I can't do something, I usually agree with them. <laughs> and now, against all odds, this completely mediocre comedy podcast has done the unthinkable. They got listeners. We got listeners. No way. Amazing. Now available on the Odyssey app or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm so happy we're at Odyssey now. Oh my God, they're amazing. The Commercial Break Podcast. You heard it here last. Tell me when you're ready. I'm ready. I'm ready to go. Guillermo, I know your film history knowledge is so encyclopedic. I also had a slight panic because I was like, Guillermo's probably seen every single one of them and can speak to every single one in depth. That's Greta Gerwig. Greta is the director of the award-winning and massively successful Barbie which she also executive produced and wrote, along with her husband and longtime collaborator, fellow filmmaker, Noah Baumbach. Greta has been directing, producing, writing, and acting since the 2000s. She made her solo directorial debut in 2017 with Lady Bird. She followed that up with Little Women, which she then followed up with Barbie. Her choice is Howard Hawks, which to me, it makes a lot of sense. But I want to ask you, why did you choose him? Howard Hawks was one of those filmmakers that I watched movies without totally knowing or keeping track of necessarily who the director was. I just watched movies. And then I think I saw Ball of Fire before I knew it was Howard Hawks. I just saw it and I was like, I love this. I love Barbara Stanwyck. I think it's hilarious and bananas. I loved bringing up Baby. And then I suddenly was like, oh, they're all directed by Howard Hawks. How is this all the same person? I think I didn't even realize it was the same person because he transcended so many genres. Like he he was so flexible. Even like with the Westerns, I went through a big Western phase of, you know, Red River and Rio Bravo. And I kind of can't believe he's responsible for all these movies. The range is extraordinary. It's, of course, an era of filmmakers that very selflessly had no signature and wanted to service the needs of an assembly line and all that. But Hogs wasn't independent most of his life. And it really is about him trying to tell a story that on the one hand, he repeats storylines often and willfully, I would say, yeah. trying to either get them better or getting more familiar. But at the same time, he tackles all genres, like you said. And you, in a very short filmography, <laughs> you have seen willing to just go, oh, you saw that one? Let me show you this one. And completely jump the scale the tone, and each of your movies take enormous risks, as, as did his. So is this something you knew you were doing, or is it just a challenge? What has made you take those leaps? Well, I think this is sort of just maybe selfish, but I love movies, and I love working on them. And I think that there's some ways in which, I, you know, even if you're working at a pretty good clip, you only make a movie once every couple of years, and it feels like visiting a new country or something and like living somewhere that you haven't lived before. And I think each time I've wanted to explore something new, a new thing, and it's the excitement to be in a new part of cinema. Certainly when I think of Hawks' movies, whether it's something serious or something hilarious or no matter what the genre is, I feel like you're situated I feel so cozy inside of them. Yeah. There's something about them. They feel like they really 
they they take care of a viewer in an unshowy way, but you yeah. are right in with the characters in the story. I always feel like directors, it's like a director is a dance partner and you feel if your partner isn't holding you properly, if they squeeze you too tight, you don't like it. If it's too loose, it feels stressful. He he holds you in just the right way and you find yourself doing dances you didn't know you could because he's right there with you as a director. And I think for me, a lot of it just comes down to pure enjoyment too. It's just like, I feel like extremely entertained by his movies. Mm-hmm. I think the way Hawks uses language and dialogue and speed, I think that's a big thing for me. And that's something that um, I would love to make a movie one day that has no talking, <laughs> but so far I haven't done it. But um, I think one thing that unites my movies is it, it, there's a lot of language. And I think of him as a deft user of language. Not, I mean, like, obviously, like his girl Friday being just the speed of that dialogue. His Girl Friday, directed by Howard Hawks in 1940, is a screwball comedy starring Hawks's most frequent leading man, Cary Grant, as a newspaper editor trying to win back his best reporter, who just so happens to be his ex-wife, played by Rosalind Russell. When he convinces her to cover one last story, the two of them get caught up in a murder case. In typical screwball fashion, comedy and chaos ensue. His Girl Friday is a vehicle for the charisma and chemistry of its stars. And as Greta alluded to, it features sharp and snappy dialogue, a staple of a Hawks film. Howard Hawks helped pioneer a more natural, conversational manner of delivering dialogue in movies. Less call and response, more intersecting and overlapping. For all to your wonderful and loathsome sort of way. Now, will you please be quiet just long enough for me to tell you what I came up here to say? I have a lunch date already. I cannot break you. Will you take your hands off me? What are you playing, osteopath? It may seem commonplace now, but at the time, it was totally modern. Do you know where you got the idea to have all that overlapping dialogue? Here's Girl Friday, the dialogue was particularly adaptable to that. And I noticed that people talked and talked over one another, and especially people who talked fast and were in a quick argument or quick description. So we wrote the dialogue in a way that left the end of the sentence so you didn't need it in the beginning of a sentence, and we just kept them overlapping. Mm -hmm. And any new actor that came in took them a couple days to get oriented and going. Mm -hmm. Everybody put up with that, and uh, then it worked beautifully. Nobody had ever used that. That was, you know, its first use. Yeah. Except you'd sort of played around with it in... Oh, I played around with it before. You can't start off uh, uh, and do it. And you can't do it with all actors, especially at that time, because Mm -hmm. they didn't know how to do it. Yeah. And then gradually it began to spread, and people began to do more of it. I actually made the cast of Barbie watch his Girl Friday because I wanted that. I was like, can we get this speed and the rhythm and also even the way to speak about how I wanted them to memorize the lines. And I did the same thing with Little Women. It's that I wanted it to be in that, you know, the deep brain. So it's almost automatic, like the lines aren't you're never searching for the lines. They're just there for you. That's a great way of putting it. Yeah. And actually also, I mean, there's lots of Howard Hawks movies we talked about. Another one was Ryan's performance. I showed him John Barrymore in 20th Century. Yes. 
What do you know about talent? What do you know about the theater? What do you know about genius? What do you know about anything, you bookkeeper? You try to force that palooka down the public store and you'll find out what I know. I've had enough of your treachery. Get out! From now on, I close the iron door on you. This is John Barrymore, grandfather of Drew, in Howard Hawks' 1934 film, 20th Century, in which Barrymore plays Oscar Jaffe, an eccentric and volatile Broadway theater director. I've had enough of your treachery. Max, get out! As Greta mentioned, she gave his performance as a reference to Ryan Gosling, who played Ken in Barbie. Just because it's so self-involved, but also so, <laughs> so it has so much pathos. And, and John Barrymore is so funny, but he's funny because he takes it extremely seriously. There is a saying that some of the best comedy is not about characters that know or think they're funny, yes. but characters think they're killing it. Or yes. characters that think they are really earnest and they are not ridiculous by design. Guillermo might as well be describing Buster Keaton, the eternally stoic genius of physical comedy, who was a revolutionary filmmaker in his own right during the silent era. Buster Keaton was also a friend of Howard Hawks. Were you at all influenced by uh, Keaton because your pictures don't look like his, but I've always said that Keaton was a kind of a, a Hawks director, if you know what I mean. He, he really had a great sense of style and pace and oh i enjoyed keaton we were friends he'd do strange things and i learned a lot watching his pictures he also had great understatement in his comedy yeah straight face you know i had a new dog a great big police dog and he was sitting on the stairs and went upstairs in the house and he was holding out the dog and the dog wanted to go away and Keaton kept holding on to him, so the dog just lifted his leg and went all over Keaton. <laughs> Keaton just looked at the dog and went upstairs and got an umbrella, came down, oh, and put the umbrella up and says, okay, dog, come on over here. <laughs> he really without was, a, breaking a, Without changing his expression of his face at all. Yeah. Well, that, I wonder if you didn't get the idea that you said to me once about doing a comedy that don't let anybody try to be funny. Oh, sure. And Keaton never really tried to be funny. Mm -hmm. Well, he was the epitome of that. John Barrymore's performance in 20th Century was the anti-Keaton in terms of expression, but he took his role completely seriously, which in the context of the movie was hilarious. It was an act of self-parody for Barrymore, who had a long and celebrated career as a very serious thespian. Wasn't all of that, in a way, Barrymore making fun of himself, making fun of the image that, you know, of the great actor? Oh, it had to, you know. He asked me, with a great deal of dignity, Mr. Hawks, just why have you chosen to come to me to play this bunch of junk? Well, I said it's a story about the biggest ham in the world, and God knows you fit that. He said, okay, I'll do the picture, I'll do the picture. What are you talking about? I'm Please, they're just... waiting for you, you'll be late. What are you going to do? Nothing, while you're here. Go In this scene from 20th Century, Barrymore as Jaffe tries to win back his former lover, now a Hollywood star, by posturing that he'll jump from the window of his posh New York City apartment if she leaves him. 
New York. Oh. It received me once when I came here a little farm boy. It will receive me again. This scene in particular made an impact on Greta Gerwig. I remember on many a winter's eve. Lily Garland, I haven't finished yet. Actually, the part in, like, when he's yelling at her in that scene and he stands by the window very dramatically and sort of, you know, says, like, there's nothing for me here. When he's, like, standing by the window and he's like, Lily! And I showed the whole scene to Ryan and he came up with the blocking for the bedroom scene at the end of Barbie where he kind of runs to the edge of the house. That was influenced by John Barrymore. Oscar, you horrible fake. Be a man. You're not going to jump out of any window. <laughs> Trying to make me believe you cheap hand. The female lead in 20th Century is Carol Lombard, playing an actress named Lily Garland. And just as John Barrymore informed Ryan Gosling's Ken, so too did Carol Lombard for Margot Robbie as Barbie. I can't even see my own mother. That's not love, it's pure tyranny. Carol Lombard is actually a reference point for Margot, for, for Barbie. Oh, wow. Not just in 20th century, but also to be or not to be. She's so wonderful in it. And she could really let her voice go up the octaves. And you never were annoyed by her. She just was outrageous and funny and yes. winning. She was extraordinary. Here's what Howard Hawks told Peter about directing Carol Lombard and John Barrymore in 20th century. When you uh, made 20th Century, which I think was the first talking comedy you made, that was the first picture in which Carol Lombard was Carol Lombard, you know, the Carol Lombard that we remember. Mm -hmm. How did you come to cast her in the picture? Carol in real life was very much like the character in the story. Carol came from the same little town in Wisconsin, which I came from. And so I knew her, and uh, I just thought that she could do a good job of it. We had a little difficulty in starting out. Uh, she started in to try and act, and that didn't please John Barrymore very much. So I took Carol for a walk, and I asked her what she would do if a uh, man said such and such a thing to him. She said, I'd kick him right in the stomach. And I said, well, Barrymore said that to you. Why don't you kick him? She just looked at me, and I said, what would you do if somebody said such and such a thing to you? And she just waved her hands with a typical Lombard gesture, and I said, well, he said that to you. So why don't you just start out and be natural and kick him in the stomach, wave your arms, and if you don't, I'm going to fire you. <laughs> and she did, and Barrymore said she was just marvelous. And he said, that's a new star. And so that was the way we made an entire picture, I think, in about three weeks' time. Mm. And didn't she always send you a telegram after that when she started a picture? Saying, I'm going to start kicking him in the stomach today. Yeah. There's several things to talk about here. First of all, the two genres that were birthed out of sound, legitimately for me, were Scruble, which is the unholy marriage of the Prattful and the comedy that came from Bodyville with the verbosity and speed of uh, radio. Right? That's, yes. Without sound, we wouldn't have Scruble, really. And the second one is musical. Wouldn't have musicals if it hadn't been for sound. Both those genres, obviously, you tackle on the last one. But the other thing I find in common with you and Hawks is Hawks, no matter what he's doing, he can take as venerated a genre as the Western, and he makes it feel of the time. 
Yeah. It doesn't make it feel as an artifact of the past and the glorious past is modern. When he does a gangster film, he makes it feel really, really the urgency of the time and so forth. And I think in many ways you've done the same. Uh, one of the things I loved so much about Little Women is that it was eminently about now, eminently about today. So when you talk about the modernity of Hawks, I see it in your films. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, I, I'll take it. I think of him as sort of an unshowy director in some ways, that he's clean. There's like a cleanness to everything he does. But then even in that, like one of my favorite things in Rio Bravo is when they're kind of waiting out the night and they're hanging out and they sing two songs. They don't just sing one song. They sing two songs. And there's something about that that I was like, if your audience is okay, if they're sitting tight, if they love the characters, if they love the story, two songs is a delight. They're not going to be sad. Yes. But you could see someone being like, wow, how you can't do two songs? Yeah, because I think that we go to the movies to meet people, really. Yeah. That are yeah. more interesting than us, certainly. Mm -hmm. and, and more compelling than real life or more real than real life. There's a sort of like practicality in his characters always. They feel um, just like this filmmaking has a practicality to it. I like that quality in his characters. They're not neurotic, actually. No, you're absolutely right. They feel like people that, that are zany in a way that is not uh, not impossible to me. Very American. It is true. It's very American. And also, I think the different kinds of characters between, like, Cary Grant and bringing up Baby is such a different character than the character in His Girl Friday. And it's within the same sort of matrix of Cary Grant characters that make sense to us. It's a kind of acting I love that's not, you know, it's pre the rise of the great sort of method actors, but it's the outside persona informing the character. And I think the same happens with John Wayne and this ability to, within something that's familiar to the audience, still find something that's truthful and big. They're big performances. They're not subtle, really, but they're, it's almost like he expands the idea of Cary Grant. Yeah, the, I mean, I wanted to talk to you about that is... The comedy in Barbie is quite literally you're dealing with two types. They have been minted, and yet you find truth in them, essential truth of the male doll and the female doll, which is really quite moving. One of the things when Noah and I started writing Barbie that we, you know, one of Noah's many objections to us doing this at all was um, that there are no characters there, you know, there, and there's no story. There are objects to be projected onto. I mean, literally, it's the thing that kids use to creatively play. And then it, it became the thing that we were able to expand upon. And we were like, OK, if we're taking this seriously, if Barbie is 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 real mm -hmm. and that Ken is basically her accessory, yeah. what it provided for was this screwball idea or or something that's so, you know, what I love about screwballs is they feel like these whirly gigs that get out of control that at some point, I mean, this isn't Hawks, but um, like my favorite moment in a screwball movie is like the very end of Palm Beach story where the, it's like all of a sudden there's like a wedding and they're like, there's another twin and the other way, like, and you're like, oh my God, what's happening? That kind of like a layer on a layer on a layer on a layer. It's like, if we started with it, it allowed us to start flipping things and then flipping them again. And in that kind of chaos that feels like it gains speed as you go, 
it allows for things that other genres don't necessarily have. It's like, it's like part of it is feeling like this unwieldy momentum rolling down a hill. And I think, you know, certainly when I think of Hawks's comedies, they have that feeling of yes. like, you can feel it almost like the last third, it starts really picking up in a way that I find it kind of euphoric. Yes. Even in, even the dramas and the way the something like only angels accelerates or the, yeah, they accelerate to, you, you feel the movie picking up speed. In 1939, Howard Hawks directed Only Angels Have Wings. It stars his go-to leading man, Cary Grant, as a roguish pilot in charge of an airfield in a remote and perilous South American outpost. This is Barranca, a South American banana port where men live by their daring and women by their charm. Out of the fog steps a girl with a questionable past and a devil-may-care future. Out of the clouds drops a man with a propeller blade for a heart and an expert's eye for a pretty face. His love of adventure is matched only by his passion for the female lead of the picture, a traveling entertainer played by Jean Arthur. Hey, you're a queer duck. So are you. I can't make you out. Same here. Their reluctant romance is fueled by Hoxian dialogue. What was she like, anyway? Who? That girl that made you act the way you do. A whole lot like you. Just as nice, almost as smart. Chorus girl? Only by temperament. Well, at least you're true to the type. Sit down. Make yourself comfortable. Is Only Angels Have Wings one of your favorite pictures? I liked it very much. Yeah. Well, it came from a true story. Really? Mm -hmm. There was such a little airfield. They had a man up radio, told him when they get through the pass. A little chorus girl stopped there, coming from a tab show, ran into this fellow, got a little tight, slept with him, fell in love with him, and hung around instead of going off. And he married her, and they were two of the happiest people I've ever seen. Mm. The people you knew? I met them when I was flying down there. Mm -hmm. That was a real character. That's what Gene Arthur played. Same stuff. Mm -hmm. I find Only Angels Have Wings, that movie really makes me cry and in a very unexpected way. And also, it's another Cary Grant that's different again. And I find that movie to be when you settle into it, it just has, I, I keep going there with the it's cozy, even though it's very sad. Right about that. I mean, the, that's the thing that is incredible for me. The modernity of Hawks is you are sitting not with great vistas of an epic West. You're hanging on a small room with four men that are very, very, very defined archetypes of a certain part of the traditional narrative or with uh, two people that are constantly in motion against each other provoking comedy or somebody said I, I don't remember who said Hawks's prose for this poetry Hawks was a big 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 reader and was really into the power of fiction You were the first person to uh, have William Faulkner write scripts for the pictures, weren't you? I believe so, yes. yes. 
Not only did Howard Hawks draw inspiration from the great American novelists of his era, he befriended them too and turned them on to Hollywood. Here he is telling Peter about the time he commissioned a screenplay from William Faulkner, who at the time was working at a bookshop in the basement of a Macy's department store in New York City. Yes, I read a short story of Faulkner's, bought it, I didn't know him, and then thought it might be a good idea to get him out to do the script on it. And he came out, smoked a pipe and listened and didn't say one word. And I talked to him for about an hour and a half. And finally, he got up to go and I said, where are you going to go? And he said, well, you want me to write it, don't you? And I said, yes. And he said, well, I'm going to go and write it. And I said, well, can't you wait and have a drink and let's get acquainted? And he said, sure. And then he went off and he wrote it, and in six days he wrote a script that was one of the finest scripts that I've ever read. It was that good. And then Faulkner and I became friends, and I think he did five or six stories for me, something like that. He was a fine workman and a great writer. Well, was that first picture, Today We Live? First picture was Today We Live, mm. yes. Was he understood the technique of writing for pictures? There was no... Well, Bill understood the technique of writing. I mean, he wrote well. We were doing a picture called Air Force, and I called him and I said, Bill, I need some help. The pilot of the picture is going to die, and I need a death scene. And he wrote us the simplest scene you've ever known, a, a pilot uh, getting ready for takeoff, and his crew standing around and making the responses that they went through to make take, uh, takeoff. And when he took off, he died. Hmm. It was a very interesting method of doing it. We shot it just as he wrote it. As I say, he was a good writer. So those the people who are good, they write like angels. You know, I mean, they have a method of expression that is so good. Howard Hawks also adapted a novel called To Have and Have Not from his fishing buddy, Ernest Hemingway. To Have and Have Not, for instance, is, has very little to do with the, the Hemingway book. Well, he told me it was his worst book, and I said, well, it's easy to make a picture. Let's uh, sit down and talk about how these two people, which are very interesting people in your story, how did they meet? And uh, the story developed in a week or ten days while we were fishing. There is something to be said for him being not only friends and contemporary to Faulkner or Hemingway. Hemingway brings with him all the modernity of that moment in America gives birth to the entire rhythm of noir literature. Yes. Right? And and Hawks has that final, powerful, no-nonsense, quintessential American aesthetic. The sort of simplicity and the force of Hemingway's words and prose that are, you know, they, like you're saying, they're very. it's very American, but it's also like no fuss, no muss. When I watch Hawks' movies, all the dialogue, and I feel this way about Hemingway, too, you can feel that they were written on a typewriter with a report. Yeah, clack, clack, clack. That rhythm is the rhythm, uh, the lights went out around 10 p.m., period. Uh, nothing moved in the alley except for the shadow in the corner, period. I was always bilingual, but it took me about 10 years to start creating something resembling American prose in the screenplays. and. Uh, Hemingway was always the guy I would read because the American language is rhythmic, it's percussive, yeah. and uh, all the Romance languages are melodic. 
we use 50 words and an American uh, novel would use 20 to provoke the same or a similar effect. And I think uh, with Hawks is, is the same. And they also have, and I think maybe this is connected to him as a reader, but they have very clearly defined, instantly accessible psychology. The psychology of these characters feels spot on and totally modern. That shines through in all of them, which I think is maybe, you know, a reason that as a filmmaker, when it is spot on, the psychology of characters, it's like a party trick you don't get credit for. But when you're actually trying to do it, you realize how hard it is to situate, like, here's this person, here's what they're driven by. And I mean, he certainly gets some of the most incredible performances out of people because I think I listened to one of the clips of Peter interviewing him where he said the thing about you don't have to make every scene the scene. Three great scenes and no bad ones. You once said to me, I, I, I see if I get this right, that uh, the formula for a good picture is to have two or three really good scenes and not annoy the audience the rest of the time. I told it first to Wayne in, in uh, Red River, and every once in a while I hear him telling somebody that. I told him, look, don't try so hard on every scene. If it's a real good scene, really go to work on it and work hard, but if not, Get it over in a hurry and don't annoy the audience because if you do two good scenes in this picture and don't annoy the audience, you'll be good. Mm. If I make four good scenes, I'll make a good picture if I don't annoy the audience. The rest right. So it becomes down to the matter of taste and I'm always fighting against scenes that might annoy the audience. You don't want to annoy the audience yet. Yeah. However he gets these performances, they never feel heavy. They feel lighter than air, but perfectly correct. Well, Hawks knew how to get out of the way also. Yes. I think that you have two types of directors. Directors that demand of you, almost like, look at me. They are not nurturers. They are not there to feed you. And Hawks is there to give you a good meal and that's it. By the time you realize what you're watching, the movie is already in the middle of the second act. It is really remarkable to me that he doesn't get in the way. My experience of coming to movies, I mean, I loved movies, but I felt like I came to it late in a certain way because it wasn't until I was in college that I started putting together that what I was interested in was directors. Like I w suddenly was in a city where there was a repertory theaters, like they would play movies at Film Forum or MoMA or the Museum of Moving Image. And I would be able to see, they'd often program a whole week of a director. Before then, I kind of, I think I watched movies like a lot of people watch movies, which is that I looked, I liked actors. So I just looked for actors that I liked. And then there was also a video rental store near my college that had, um, it was a great video rental store and they had it organized by director. So then you started to realize what you were looking at. <laughs> yeah. The first movie you say you saw, Fox was a comedy or you became aware of him. You probably had seen a few already. I think probably my first one I saw was Bringing Up Baby, but I think um, I remember seeing Ball of Fire and then I realized it was Hawks. Ball of Fire, I just was thought it was a just such a hoot. I was so <laughs> charmed by it and then I later put it into the box of Hawks. 
Ball of Fire, directed by Howard Hawks in 1941, is a screwball comedy starring Gary Cooper as an English professor named Bertrand Potts who falls in love with a charismatic nightclub performer named Catherine O'Shea, a.k.a. Sugarpuss, played by Barbara Stanwyck. This is research, isn't it? Yes. Certainly. Who is that guy who learned so much from watching an apple drop? Isaac Newton, the law of gravity. Yeah, that's him. And I want you to look at me as another apple, Professor Potts. Just another apple. Come here. Professor Potts lives and works with a group of his colleagues in New York City. When Sugarpuss needs a place to lay low from her gangster boyfriend, she does so with the professors in their academic bachelor pad. Who are you? The story is a play on Snow White and the Seven Dwarves. This is Dr. Markenbrook, our physiological expert. Oh. It's Professor Robinson, law. Mm -hmm. Professor Gurkha Cole. Not so fast. Just let it creep up on me. I'll get to know them. Come here, physiology. For all I know, I've got a fever. Feel. It's possible. Certainly. He wants to throw me out of my tin. Oh. Ball of Fire was written by the legendary duo of Charles Brackett and Billy Wilder. They're probably best known today for Sunset Boulevard, which Wilder directed, but together they were amongst the most prolific and decorated screenwriters in Hollywood history. But despite their prowess with the pen, Howard Hawks claims that he helped Brackett and Wilder crack the story for Ball of Fire. Didn't Ball of Fire start out with somebody saying uh, we're doing Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs or something? Mm-hmm. I did. Yeah, what was that story? That? Well, I agreed to do the uh, Ball of Fire picture for Golden because I wanted to work with Brackett and Wilder and uh, they had a good story, and I went off and went fishing in Florida and with Hemingway and came back and said, how'd things go? Well, we haven't got anything. What's the matter? Well, we're stuck. What do you mean you're stuck? We said, we don't know what the story's about. And I said, for Christ's sake, it's Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. And Billy Wilder said, okay, you can go back and go fishing again. We'll have it done when you get back. And that's what it was. It was Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. Yeah. With, the, with Cooper as Snow White. <laughs> no, Cooper was, no, the striptease dancer was Snow White. Right. And uh, Cooper was uh, Prince. Prince Charming. Prince Charming. And the villain was the gangster. Yeah. So it was very simple. We knew just what to do. Do you have a favorite female performance? Barbara Stanwyck and Ball of Fire is pretty damn good. That's what I was going to say. And Barbara Stanwyck is, she's sly. She has this like slyness in her performances. Yeah. Like she knows the joke before you do, always. She has an amazing range. It is interesting that in a time when women had less sort of ostensible power in the world, they were written these extremely wonderful parts. <laughs> and I don't know, I don't totally understand it, but I almost feel like the parts were were better. Like maybe it's because in a way, like what you were saying about you have these archetypes and it's easier to play within archetypes and the archetypes were known by everybody and there wasn't anything. And maybe that's one of the reasons why it was so fun to write for Barbie and Ken because it kind of dealt with archetypes. I think you made the obstacle the reason to make it. Yes. In Barbie is this idea that is very screwball comedy. One single thing has changed. There's one extraordinary circumstance that shouldn't be this, right? 
in a world where everybody behaves like they're told to behave, right? Questions something that in, instantly makes them human, which is death. <laughs> death. Well, that's it. I think the final scene is so beautiful because of that. I feel this way about a lot of movies in the period of time that Howard Hawks was making movies with a lot of different filmmakers, whether it's musical or whether it's screwball or whether, you know, it's some sort of heightened comedy is I often feel like there's a current of of sadness running through it. Yeah. And I think that in a way I feel the sadness more clearly because it's so hilarious or such a high wire act that I can feel there's something melancholy really underneath it. There's even a melancholy like that for me in Ford. Yes. Constantly. Like we don't have this anymore, guys. This is gone. Greta and Guillermo have changed the topic from Howard Hawks to John Ford, who we already discussed in a previous episode. But this project is all about the interconnectivity of the art form and its practitioners. It's easy to think of these directors as titans of Hollywood who occupied their own space and time in history. But Hawks and Ford were contemporaries who drew inspiration from one another. It's interesting to compare Air Force, made in 43, with the Ford's movie, They Were Expendable, which was made two years later, because they have certain similarities. Um, obviously, you couldn't have been influenced by it because it wasn't made yet. <laughs> so I would say Ford must have been influenced by yours. But well, we've been both influenced by each other any number of times. Mm -hmm. Well, I always saw anything he made, and he saw anything I made, and so we had... I know he saw Red River, and he said, I never knew that big guy could act. Talking about Wayne. Yeah. And immediately gave him some parts that really boosted Wayne up. Well, he gave him She Wore Yellow Ribbon, which yeah. was playing an older man even than in Red River. I know. Orson Welles was part of Howard Hawks' generation, too. There's a funny line in in Air Force when they're listening to the Pearl Harbor attack and somebody says, hey, Peterson, who you got tuned in, Orson Welles? Yeah. It was well, a reference to the War of the Worlds. So. Yeah, he'd started that thing. Yeah. It must have been a pretty famous occurrence, that War of the Worlds thing, to make that work in a movie. Well, it was, holy smoke. Yeah. People began to thought it was completely real. Yeah. Did you see Orson when he was out here making Citizen Kane? I mean, did you get to know him, or did he get to know you at all in that period? Mm-hmm. He called me up, and we met. And he, of course, he used my cameraman. Told him. And I saw the picture. We got together. I said, you've been studying a lot of pictures. You got stuff from me, stuff from Ford. I went over the whole list, and he admitted it. Yeah. I said, but you did it beautifully. He'd really put a lot of time in studying, and he'd made awfully good use of different tricks that we used. Yeah. John Ford is a person who I now love, but it took me, I, I didn't immediately understand it. I thought it was beautiful, but I didn't, you know, you love what you love. I had a kind of an immediate feeling for some directors, and Ford, I always thought, I'm impressed by this, but I don't know how to get in. When I saw My Darling Clementine, I felt like I could get in. And then weirdly, this is like, you know, adventures in movie going, I guess. But like, 
the thing that made me understand Ford was how much I loved Kurosawa movies. And then I felt like that actually helped me go backwards and understand Ford. For whatever reason, I could watch Kurosawa totally just loved it straight away. No, no problem. But then I could look at Ford through a different lens. I don't know if that makes any sense. Yeah, yeah, that happens with filmmakers, don't you think? Yes, I mean, it does to me. I had filmmakers that I couldn't understand. Yeah. I will not say names. And I avoided their movies. And all of a sudden, I see one movie. And they become, I'm not exaggerating, my favorite. Yes, I had the same thing with Bergman for a while. I just didn't understand it. And then I got it. I got it. Greta is talking about Ingmar Bergman, the deeply influential Swedish filmmaker known for his stark cinematic meditations on the complexities of the human condition. I found the one that was the most accessible to me at first was Seventh Seal. Very strange. And this is something that can enliven any dinner between cinephiles. But the, the strange thing about The Seventh Seal is how much comedy there is in it. So much comedy. <laughs> when, in a way, I mean, it sounds so absurd, but like, you know, The Seventh Seal and Barbie do share something. <laughs> <laughs> There's a moment, after all, where death is death. sawing the tree like a Looney Tunes cartoon. Yes. But, <laughs> but, you know, it's funny when you say that a lot of people that work with Bergman, they all say how funny he was. How funny his sets were, like the, the opposite of what you would expect. And and the other thing that I remember from one of the documentaries about his uh, island and his uh, video library, that the most often and most worn VHS that he had was Tango and Cash. No, that's amazing. Yes. <laughs> which, is, which is quite amazing. That's amazing. I actually, I did get to see his VHS collection, but one of the ones I just noticed in his VHS collection was um, Anger Management. Yes. yes. And I was- <laughs> yes which, which makes everybody more human. And I remember chatting with Roger Corman, and he said that he was really, really obsessed with his movies performing at the box office. Wow. Oh, that's so interesting. Corman distributed Cries and Whispers, and he told me that when he put Cries and Whispers in a double bill in the drive-in cinema with a caged heat, and I said, and what was the result? He said, we made some money, and Ingmar was very happy. Oh, my God. <laughs> I love that. I love it when, because I think of all filmmakers, I think of Ingmar Bergman as the most yes. divorced from the ugliness of economic desire, you know, and I love that he was interested. But this is this is great because it puts us back to Hogs, who understood very well, maybe as well as any other filmmaker of his era, that his decisions in tackling something required independence that he couldn't tackle something that was dear to him and tackle it depending on a studio note or, you know. And I think this is something that I admire about him and that makes him very much a director's director. Yes. To remain right. independent. You've pretty much, through all your career, after the 20s when you were in, with, assigned with Fox, not been under contract to any studio. You've remained independent. How do you feel you managed to do that through the studio-controlled years of the 30s and 40s? Oh, I got lucky, and uh, 
they would want me in, but I wouldn't sign a contract. And I didn't believe in being under contract. If somebody had a story that appealed to me, I wanted to be able to go over there and do it. If there... Another reason was everybody who was under contract to a studio, all the actors were under contract, and they weren't about to loan anybody. Mm -hmm. And if I wanted to make a picture with an actor that was under contract at a different studio, I couldn't do it. So it was much better to be uh, rather free. And I just maintained that freedom. Yeah, I always, when I talk to young filmmakers, they say, oh, we, we, we'll never sell out. Mm -hmm. And I say, wait until somebody's buying. Yeah. <laughs> you don't know if nobody's buying. And if you want to talk a little bit about you preserving that in, in a scale like that, and a little bit about what you see in Hogs doing it. Yeah, I mean, I've always had a love of the tension between what the artist wants to do and the needs of a system. I think it's actually interesting. I don't know, it's probably Catholic school. No, but I like it. I like it too. I am Catholic or labs, but I agree with you. That tension is movies. I think that's an interesting place to live. So I think in a way, I don't see the For me, I've made lots of films independently as a writer, as an actor, as a director, and then I've made two films within, you know, a studio system. I will say, you know, the studio system now is obviously very different than it was when Hawks was making movies. But I think the way that I like that tension, that sort of push and pull between what these different parties are interested in. I mean, I felt this with Little Women and I felt this with Barbie. I'm sure I'll feel it again is, you know, people who work in the studio system, they make a lot of movies. They have interesting, smart things to say. They they know things. I've had great experiences at studios, so I, I can't speak to something that would be more, um, you know, dire, dire. Like I've enjoyed, I mean, my first experience was with Columbia Pictures, Sony, and I was with um, Tom Rothman and he and I, I would say he's my favorite person to fight with. Um, he'd, nah. he'd fly to New York just to yell at me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He really loves movies. He was really thoughtful about it. And he told me at one point, he said, you wouldn't be doing your job as a filmmaker if you weren't fighting me every step of the way. And I wouldn't be doing my job as a studio head if I didn't tell you you were fucking crazy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it was productive. It wasn't. And, I, you know, I got to the place I wanted to go. And with With Barbie, I also felt similarly, like the very thing they're often worried about is the thing that will make it work. 100%. I know you're worried about it and I know it's scary, but also if this has any chance of working, it's going to work because of this. Yeah, the very thing that you cannot screen test with an audience is the thing the audience will show up for. And that is a paradox that, I mean, if you tested The Exorcist, There are five moments that if you ask the audience, they would say, take that out, take that out, take that out. And, and they are the reason why the movie has an integrity. Because at the end of the day, in modern cinema, the only thing that you can say attracts audiences is a sense of a flinty integrity to the material. That they say, I want to see what this person thinks about that yeah. or how they see it. I think not cinema, not cinema, not film. But movies, movies, which is a particular way of making cinema that is very industrial, depends on the tension between commerce, industry, and individuality. That kind of capital M movies, like movies 
in that tension, it's not the only thing that's interesting to me, but I find it delightful. I find it delightful, but I've always found, again, I just keep going back to that, that sort of like, what are the requirements of the form or the rules? And then how do you break them? And then how does that, you know, you, who you are as an author shine through, which is, I think when you look at all of Hawks's movies, you see an author shine through, even as he's serving economic needs, even as he's serving different genres, when taken as a whole, there's a stamp. And that sort of seems extraordinary to me. Perhaps because of that. Exactly. I think that somebody that is not worried about a legacy, which is such a, burdensome notion. I always quote that great line from Hitchcock. And they said to Hitchcock, are you worried about posterity? And he said, what has it done for me lately? (laughs) Yeah, no, it's true. That's the industrial environment of cinema. I want to connect the modernity of that with what Peter did and has done with these recordings that we all frame with our discussions, which is at the height of a moment in American cinema where everybody was saying, this is now, this is modernity, uh, screwed all the cinema that our daddies made, mm-hmm. you know, father's cinema, mm-hmm. screw all that. Mm-hmm. He basically said, wait, wait, guys, we have more in common. Mm-hmm. Those guys, if we let them talk and we listen to their movies, we have more in common with them than you would think. Greta. I want to take a moment to to tell you that how much we all certainly I love and admire what you do and how I look forward to the next one. And when I talk about Barbie, which may I take a moment and say, you, you got people into cinemas. Back <laughs> yes. So beautifully. And you said it's great to have fun. Yes. Come to the movies and have fun. We don't have to tell you everything about the human condition now and then through a serious uh, dire movie. We can tell you about the human condition through a beautiful, multi-leveled, fun movie. Because I think Barbie is about the human condition. It's it's a very profound meditation about um, happiness and mortality, and I adore it. And Greta, we'll be watching and we'll be rooting for you. Thank you. Next time, we're one handshake away from Fritz Lang to Julie Delpy. I was very much interested in American life. I was very, very happy that I got here a chance to live and uh, become an American. And when I had nothing to do, I drove around in the country and tried to speak with everybody. I spoke with every cab driver, with every gas station attendant. And so I got a certain feeling of what I would call the American atmosphere. I have to say that the German accent, maybe it's because my ex-husband was German, um, I have a hard time listening to it. But I really enjoyed listening to this man talk about how he's not influenced by other people's films. He's influenced by the news that he reads. He likes to know about what's going on in the world and he reads the papers obsessively and that's where he takes all his inspiration. One Handshake Away is narrated by me, Louise Stratton. Executive produced by Jenna Weiss Berman. Written and directed by Perry Kroll. Our story editors are Perry Kroll and Ian Mont. Produced by me, Louise Stratton and Oren Siegel. 
Luke Moore, John Teague, and Charlie Morgan of Stack, and Perry Kroll and Ian Mont. Edited, mixed, and mastered by Perry Kroll, Andy Jaskowitz, and Ian Mont. Production support from Sean Cherry, Barry Finkel, Raj Makaja, Javier Cruces, Richard Shelsinga, Peter Tonget, and Kelsey Hayden. Special thanks to J.D. Crowley, Maura Curran, Leah Reese Dennis, Josephina Francis, Gary Unger, Colleen Camp, Kurt Courtney, and Hilary Schuff. One Handshake Away is an Odyssey original. It's Sophia Franklin, and I have a little secret to let you in on. I know you've all wanted more of me, so I'm introducing you to my brand new mini series that's out now. More of me, more of you, more of us every Monday. Bringing back all the OG feels that initially brought us together. Listen and follow Sophia with an F on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts.